Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. And welcome back to Health Matters, Dr. Ned Hoke today, uh, speaking with you the day after the election, and what a day it's been full of claims and counterclaims. I don't know where you are, but it's very it's been very unnerving of late. Um, so given that there's been the unnervingness that there has, who better to talk to than a psychologist about resiliency and lessons learned along the way? Today we'll be joined by Dr. Lise DeGeer and a discussion of her new book called Flashback Girl, Lessons in Resilience from a Burn. And we'll talk about what that burn is about. And uh, then, at the, depending on how long we go, we'll also have a follow-up reading of uh, Slavoj Zizek, our, our guest last week, uh, or his, his writing anyway. And if we have time, we'll spend some time with that again here today. So please stay tuned. We'll be back with you and Dr. Daguerre in just a moment. And welcome back to Health Matters. Welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today is joined by Dr. Lise Daguerre. I hope I have that pronunciation correct. Yes, Dr. Lise Daguerre. Oh, yes, good. absolutely. Daguerre. Okay, I'll try to get the gear part of it more. Lise Daguerre is a clinical psychologist in private practice uh, for over 20 years. She's the... Uh, uh, the lone survivor of a child of unsettled and iconoclastic parents. I have to admit, Elise, I did enjoy reading about your parents since I'm of their generation, and yeah. and and I I I I know of what you speak very very well. But anyway, Elise <laughs> is uh, got a story to tell us: a story of deep pain, joyful resiliency, and lessons learned along the way. So, uh, the name of the book is called Flashback Girl. So right away, Lise, can we, should I, would you prefer I call you Dr. Daguerre, Daguerre, or would you, Lise is good enough, or what would you prefer? I, I, I'm happy to be called Lise, and if you feel like calling me Dr. Daguerre, you can, but I don't think you need to. Okay, well, I mean, when people ask me that question, I go, I, yeah, I'm a doctor, but so what? You know, it's kind of my attitude, but then, <laughs> but then you know, I'm a legend. Anyway, okay, so Lise, um, anyway, Lise, Flashback Girl is... Uh, quite a book. It's got a lot to it and a lot of pieces, and it takes us through a, 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 a very, very close, closely grained uh, feeling of a, of, a, of a growing up girl who started, and it starts um, as a, you know, in, in her younger years, very young years, as a child, early child, early childhood. So what happened to you, Lise, in your early childhood that, that, that started this whole process? Uh, so give us the, uh, the beginning of the book, if you would. Sure. So I was in a terrible fire when I was four years old that was caused by uh, my mother's negligence, mm -hmm. along with 
a defective product. Mm. We were on vacation. My mother was trying to light a barbecue for dinner, and she poured on the charcoal briskets a product that she thought was lighter fluid, but it was not. It was a highly flammable household solvent. Wow. And that solvent, uh, when she went to light it, it uh, the, the flame traveled back into the can and exploded all over both of us. Ooh. And my mother, God bless my mother, took one look at the situation and realized that we were trapped behind a wall of flame and there was no way to get out but to run through it. And that is what my mother did, and she left me in that fire. Mm. So I was uh, alone and abandoned in the fire. My father was able to rescue me. And at the end of the day that day, I was left 65% burned on a third degree, 65% on my body, which back in 1967 was... I mean, it's even now, it is a devastating injury, but back then it was not common, really, to survive that kind of injury. Mm. But I did, and I was left with, you know, third-degree burns all over my body. My my lip was burned away, my chin, my neck, and my arms were fused to my body. And that is the beginning of this book Mm -hmm. and my journey towards health, and love, and um, wholeness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in, the, in Chapter 2, you begin to tell us about Dr. Constable. So, give Dr. Constable uh, a few words, if you would. So, Dr. John Constable was the plastic surgeon who was assigned to me and my mother. We were taken from this small New Hampshire cabin. That's where we were burned on vacation in New Hampshire. Mm. And the hospital there had, they they took one look at us and said, we cannot help these people. And so they took us by ambulance to Mass General Hospital in Boston, which just happened to be the best hospital for burns at the time in the country. Mm -hmm. And so even though, you know, it's a, I was incredibly unfortunate to be burned in the way I was, and I was incredibly fortunate be, to be taken to maybe the only hospital that could have saved me. And Dr. John Constable was my surgeon all through my childhood and adolescence and my early 20s. He was a brilliant, wonderful, kind, caring surgeon, and he took excellent care of me. I'm so grateful for him. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, of course, what does come through, and and of course... The, the the story of someone like yourself, particularly at a very early age, but at any age really, but but at an impressionable time in your life, you know, given the situation with your parents and how that all happened and so on, uh, it certainly is was uh, inspiring to read about Dr. Constable and and the kind of uh, contact that you were able to make, and of course, we're, those of us who know Mass General. Uh, and know the, the the capacity of the people there um, exactly as you say it was it was the <laughs> it was the right place to be for where you had to be so okay so maybe we should start with also at least talk about 
the disfigurement itself, because that went on to become such a big part of your story in terms of the growing up and all that you went through and the personal life that you encountered. Uh, and, and that had such a, obviously a, a major kind of like a life path with it. So maybe start us just the beginning of how it was after you, as you progress through it, you know, grow anywhere you want with it, but start somewhere where you began to feel like when you, you know, get beyond the acute stage, you know, you, you talk a good deal in the book about your, your relationships with a lot of different people as you move along, but give, give us some high spots in terms of your childhood and things of the childhood that, that mattered. And then talk about at the same time, talk about just the, the simple physicality of what your body was like, what it was like, because of course, those of us who recently here in California and other places in the world, sad to say, we were looking down the barrel of fires in an incredible frequency and with an incredible veracity. And so, yeah. so part of, part of what caught your, caught my attention to, to talk to you about, uh, uh, this burn matter is is that we were also at the time actually we were also terrified that the fire was going to come and get us so in this yeah. case the, the the fire came and got you so 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 just in a broad sweep there start as start as you're growing up process talk about what it, what what you write about in the book in terms of some of your feelings and growing along and your able your ability to reach out and, and you know share your life with uh you know fellows along the way. So I'm looking for a sweeping kind of beginning of the story. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, I think the first thing I want to say is that uh, burn care in the late 60s was different from how it is now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important to say. Now, of course, I suppose there are some places where it's exactly the same. Mm. But now burn care is pain is managed uh, much more thoroughly and sensitively, and there's a lot more programs for things like social reentry. So my, I just feel like I want to say for anybody who's going through this now mm -hmm. in California or anywhere who's listening to us, my experiences do not need to be your experiences. But my experiences were, in fact, brutal. Burns are, I think, widely acknowledged to be either one of the most painful experiences, if not the most painful experience that a, a person can have. And I was, as I say, burned on two-thirds of my body, and I was a child. I was four. Back in that day at Mass General, they didn't do pain relief for burned children. They did not, for some reason, did not think that children needed it. Mm. And so, the, you know, the dressing changes, the di twice daily dressing changes, the debridement, all these things were done by basically holding a kid down and just inflicting it on them. And it was a horrific, torturous experience that went on for. I mean, I had, I don't know, somewhere around 40 or 50 operations as a child. So it was horrific. And I, I just, again, want to say that, that they believe in pain relief now. <laughs> so, right. so it wasn't be horrific for other people the way it was for me and for other people. Believe me, I've heard from a lot of burn patients by now, old burn patients like me. And everybody's like, yeah, that's how it was. So anyway, um, so 
when I was not in the hospital having these incredibly painful operations, I was home trying my best to have a quote-unquote normal life as best I could, which was not easy because I was massively disfigured. And um, again, back in those days, there was no societal discussion of things like bullying or how to treat people who were different. And I was just kind of left at the wolves to manage this on my own. And it was very, very hard. Uh, I will say that the kids who knew me, my friends and the people who I would get to know were almost always very nice because I, you know, I'm, I'm friendly and I, I'm, I like people. And so people respond to that once they know me, but the kids who didn't know me could be horrible. And it was a very painful, lonely existence for many years. Mm-hmm. So now you, you, you grew up in the, uh, New Jersey area, I gather, and so tell us a little bit about the the the, the geography of, of where we're talking about when you when you were four and when you, you know, so so give us a little story about so our our listeners have a feeling. I mean, you know, there you were in New Hampshire, so then you went to Boston because that was the the the, the normal thing to do to go to a big city hospital. But that's not where you that's not where you grew up. Um, so tell us a little bit about the. The sort of family background, how it was, you know, where do you started your life and as a young person, and and then talk a little bit, to maybe give us a sense of, of, you know, sort of a a, a tra- travel tick of of you were between this age and that age, you lived in this area and this age and that age, you lived in that area. So I, it's because you've you've done a little bit of moving around, and that's kind of part of your story, it seems like. Yeah, sure. So uh, I will say that my parents. I'm going to start to bring them into our discussion. My my parents were brilliant, very intelligent, and very talented musicians, both mm. of them. Very interesting people, but not people who were prepared to be parents. <laughs> right. And not people who did a good job at that. Mm-hmm. They were self-involved. Mm-hmm. And that's one word for that level of self-involvement, and you might think of other ones. Right. So uh, we, we moved a great deal, um, always because they had some place that they needed to be or, or things that they needed to do. And, you know, when you have two children, it's hard to keep uprooting them, but there was a lot of that. So I was born in Oyster Bay, Long Island. Then we moved to Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, then East Orange, New Jersey, then Glen Ridge, New Jersey, then back to Oyster Bay, Long Island, and then finally in Fairfield, New Jersey. And that's where I graduated high school. Mm -hmm. And yes, I was in a hospital in Boston, even though my family was in New Jersey. And so what that also means is that I was in the hospital almost all the time by myself. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think people are often really quite shocked by is um, how a little child going through these things was left on her own most of the time. But that is how it was for various reasons. My, my father had a job to keep down, and my mother 
just simply did not prioritize my well-being, which is one of the reasons why Dr. John Constable, as we discussed earlier, Mm -hmm. was such a pivotal figure in Mm -hmm. my mind, Mm -hmm. because he was really the one who was my constant companion Mm -hmm. when I was going through these things. Obviously, he wasn't my companion all day long. He was busy, but but I saw him every day, and he was so kind to me, Mm -hmm. and he was the one who uh, gave me that sense of security mm-hmm. as a child. Reading your words, my feeling is is that it, it, I, I get a sense that you were able to extract uh, from your various contacts with people. You, you seem quite up, upfront about being able to sort of find what you need. And you talk uh, part of the, I, I think it's your book, that you talk about also having a lot of self-possession. You, 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 you learned your way around the world. So in a sense, you had a, uh, uh, some people would call it, a, a, I wouldn't, get without the burns, you had a lot of, the privilege of a lot of freedom. So say a little bit about that, if you would. Yes. So you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think that one of, the, one of my resilience gifts is the ability to connect with people and to, at times, allow other people to be my rock. You know, mm-hmm. I had a mother and a father who were not able to be that. Right. I had other problems along the way. But that doesn't mean that there aren't really other good people in the world who were very kind and caring to me. Mm. And that is one of the things that I talk about as one of the lessons in this book. And I'm just going to say that, you know, we, we mentioned, so the title of the book is Flashback Girl. Right. And then the subtitle is Lessons on Resilience from a Burn Survivor. Hmm. And the, I, the lessons are very, there's a little lesson at the end of every chapter in this book. Mm-hmm. And that is the psychologist in me that is kind of taking a step back away from the memoir material and saying, okay, reader, here is some lesson some learning that you can take from this chapter for yourself, something to help you with your thoughts about resilience and how to build that in yourself. And so one of the lessons that gets actually kind of repeated is the lesson of valuing friends and noticing who's truly there for you and taking very good care of those people because those people may actually wind up to be a family for you. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to Dr. Lise DeGeer, and we're t- talking about her book, Flashback Girl, Lessons on Resilience from a Burn Survivor. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Please stay tuned. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Neto today joined by Dr. Lise DeGeer. And we're talking about her uh, just book out September the September the uh, last uh, month or two ago, just out uh, flashback girl lessons on resilience from a burn survivor. So um, maybe we could just sort of go off to this tangent for a minute and say, how did it take fifty years for you to find finally tell this story? What what <laughs> how did that how did that build up to being this this being the time to do it? Yeah, so it's funny that that there's a complicated answer to that. 
So the first part is that I did not want to write my memoir until my parents had both died. Ah, yes. And the reason for that is that they, you know, again, they, they meant well, they never meant any harm, but in fact, they did a lot of harm, in particular my mother. And I did not wish to cause her embarrassment or, you know, distress. Mm-hmm. So I waited to write my life story until she passed away. And honestly, as soon as she, as we had her funeral and settled what we needed to settle, I started this book right away. And uh-huh. I wrote it within a year. Mm-hmm. It had just built up in me all this time. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing, or maybe another interesting thing, is that I certainly never could have dreamed when I started writing this book three years ago, that it would be released in 2020. Mm. And 2020 has been such an incredibly challenging year for all of us, Mm. you know, for everybody. And the buzzword now, it's so many articles and and shows that you see, Mm. the, the buzzword of this year seems to be resilience. And I had subtitled this book, you know, Lessons in Resilience, a long time ago. So it's kind of funny how it wound up coming out in this year where, well, I think a lot of people are looking for some help with resilience this year. Um, <laughs> you'd have to believe that to be so. And of course, um, and, and it's, a good, it's a good word, and it's a successful word in many ways. And yet at the same time, it, 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 for a lot of us, I mean, even educated people, it sort of sounds good. But let's talk about what it really means. And Dr. DeGeer, since we're going to put your doctor hack on, doctor hat on, and ask us, talk about this. Since so much of your book is has a lot of psychology involved in it, your personal psychology and the, and also your sense of the psychology of the zeitgeist of which you've been part. So maybe let's just stay with the word resilience a little bit longer for the moment, and ask you to tell us about psychological resilience and what it's made of and what and give maybe give us some examples from your book and from from your maybe maybe more subsequent experience even but talk to us about psychological resilience because i think that it it's one of those words that sounds good but how do we actually wear it on our bodies how do we actually put the gloves on and and feel what it feels like great yes so maybe we'll just start with resilience what it means is the ability to bounce back mm-hmm. And to be considered resilient, you need to have sort of two things. One is you need to have had something pretty hard happen to you. Mm. Uh, And then the second is that you had a a strong recovery, perhaps even winding up better than you were before it happened. So there are a lot of elements and, and, and factors that lead into resilience, not just one, not just two, there's many, and they interact with each other. And there are things that, you know, we really can, some things that we cannot control, and some things that we can. The th- things, for example, that we can't control are things like genetics. Um, there, there are genetic underpinnings to resilience, and, you know, obviously you, you're born with that or you're not. And... Um, Certainly having economic privilege is helpful, 
uh, with a resilient recovery because you can access resources. You know, you can you can get to Mass General Hospital and have the best doctor, or uh, you can hire a good psychologist to help you, or you can make sure you're getting good nutrition. Mm. So economic privilege, um, living in a safe environment, for example, these are things that help a person do better. But the thing that I find more interesting than those things are the traits of resilient resilient people that can be worked on and improved. And I talk about those. I I do a lot of um, presentations now. And I have come up with a little mnemonic for those, and I I can talk about those with with you and your audience if you like. Uh, The mnemonic is goals plus M&M which is weird, I know. It used to be just goals, but I had to add in the M&M, so I, I'm just going with it. And shall I continue with this? Please. No, 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 no. This is what we're, okay. Here. Okay. This is what we're here to do. Awesome. awesome. Okay. So the G in goals stands for gratitude. The O is for optimism. The A is for active coping. The L is for love. The S is for social skills. Hmm. And the M&M for meaning-making. Mm. And I can go into any of those as you want me to. Wow, that's a, <laughs> a Himalayan-sized uh, mountain that you've just drawn a picture of there. It, 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 <laughs> you know, it, it is, in terms of the, you know, the human opportunity for the, the righteous and, and happy and fulfilled life um, filled with the kinds of things that you've just spoken to are I mean, these are the these are the goals of 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 the major religions. These are the goals of the uh, at least the print the principal goals of, or I mean to say principles of a lot of things of education, for instance. And so, and what you've done is you've at least to me to my ear anyway, you've you've made it you've brought it back to earth in a way. You've 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 given us some some words that are. They're even they're 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 big ideas and big things, and yet the words are simple enough, so that it's uh, it's it's something you can kind of you can write it on the inside inside of your arm almost, and kind of look at it when you needed some needed some help. So how are you actual how are you actualizing this kind of training? I guess I'm assuming that there's some training involved with your with your presentations and so on. Are you? I mean, you're. It's it's one thing to have these things as ideals. But how are how are you helping people actualize some of this material? Well, honestly, I think in some ways that's my next step. Uh-huh. I, I had somebody present to me recently, you should do a workbook around this. And mm-hmm. I thought, ooh, there you go. That is a great idea. Mm-hmm. So really, I'm, I'm not training people. I mean, I, I certainly work with my clients on this, mm-hmm. which is, of course, a very intimate kind of environment where, yes, sometimes we're doing something that could sound like training. But mostly I'm presenting these ideas and encouraging people to work on them. So let me give you an example. Um, With optimism, for example, that's, so that's the O in gold. That's a good one. Uh, Yeah. A lot of times when I've been talking, especially this year, and everybody is so rightfully scared and concerned about COVID and how long it's going on and 
the ways that our life has been changed and, and the fact that there's no clear end in sight for that. The example of optimism for people is, look, all that is true, and it's been a terrible time. But there are armies of scientists all over the world, not even just our country, all over the world. There are armies of scientists working very hard on vaccines. And there's quite a few in, in the works. And sooner or later, those will come out. And we will get vaccinated. And we will get back to our lives. So I think a lot of times, as soon as people start to think about that, that optimistic thought softens the, the, the fear and the anxiety mm. and brings in an element of realistic hope. And that changes the mood. And then that can go a long way to mm. changing your day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a lot of the, um, the gratitude, optimism, and I could go on, a lot of these things are, they're either cognitive skills or they're social skills or they're perhaps philosophical things to consider that people can get better at. Mm-hmm. either through working on it on their own or perhaps through working in therapy with someone or perhaps through some self-education. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why I like these, uh, cer- this certain um, subset of resilience skills mm-hmm. because I think that some of us are perhaps born more naturally resilient, but resilience in general is something that can be improved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I can make it through my incredibly difficult circumstances in life, which, you know, we've honestly only talked about a few of them. I, I had a life of a lot of tragedy. If I can make it through that life, I, I believe that everyone can improve their own circumstances. Mm-hmm. Well, not yeah. why I wrote this book. And that's what this book is about. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, you, 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 go way, way into the a granular level of terms of how it was growing up with the disfigurement that you lived with, with the, these, the parents that you had, and so on. Now, um, in the middle of the book, there's a tragedy. There's, of course, there's tragedy after tragedy, really. But this one that jumped out at me, it's about Mark and, and the green building. Yeah. Uh, maybe this is a this is a hard one for our listeners. So please, you know, uh, if you are scared of things uh, that scare people, this might be a time to go get a glass of milk, because uh, this is um, actually just last week we had a uh, uh, a pro our program consisted of welcoming a new uh, psychology treatment center in Sonoma County for for uh, youth psychosis and uh and it's uh they have a whole they they're calling it you know gold standard care all that kind of thing but what it is it's a it's a a um, a residential program that is uh, arose from the the suicide of this young woman and it uh kind of ties into what we need to talk about with you next and so maybe you could tell us about your brother and yeah maybe that Yes. So 
my brother Mark, Mark Emil de Geer, that's his full name, was my my only sibling. He was five years older than me. He was my very favorite person, and possibly still is my very favorite person. Mm-hmm. He was uh, an incredibly kind and caring young guy. He kind of stepped in, you know, the way sometimes it is for people when, when parents aren't really there for for their kids. Sometimes the older sibling steps in to help the younger ones, and that's what my brother did for me in a very kind and devoted way. He also was himself a genius. He, he graduated high school early and got into MIT and had virtually perfect board scores. And I could go on and on about how gifted he was. He was an incredibly gifted young guy. But all that, all those gifts and talents um, did not help him be happy. He had, he was a lonely person. He was a sad guy. And our parents, as neglectful as they were of me, they were equally neglectful of him. And he didn't have anybody looking out for him the way I did, because I had him, (laughs) um, as well as my doctor, but he had nobody. Mm. And eventually, he, he took his life. He was 19 years old. He was at college. And he took his life by jumping off the tallest building on campus. Which he, which he, had say, which he told people he was going to do. I mean, it wasn't, yes, it, 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 didn't, it didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, and, yes. and so had, had you heard from him? Had you heard any of that from him prior to him doing this yourself? Or? Not, you know, he had said to me, the, I guess the last time I saw him over the summer before he took his life in October, hmm. he had said to me at one point, someday I will kill myself. Mm-hmm. And I was 14 at the time. And also this was back in the 70s where, you know, we were just were not as educated about suicide. And I, I didn't know anything about what one was supposed to do in that situation. I, I never occurred to me to do something. I was right. just a kid. But he actually told many people mm-hmm. that he was going to kill himself, and and and, and no one took action. Mm. Yeah. Well, you... So, you go ahead. I'm sorry. No, please continue. Well, because you're, you have a chapter uh, called Four Suicides, the Second and the Third, so... Uh, I and I there's the when I the part one of the things that I read it was very very touching about when you wrote about your brother and uh, part of the part of the uh, I don't know if the word charm is the right word but part of the the uh, the food let's call it of this book is the intimacy that you share with the reader there was there's this book is almost entirely first person narrative and uh, so you talk not only about uh, educated things, you might say, but you talk about the feel, a lot of the feelings and, and about how, and you sort of share with your reader your process of, of what it took for you to sustain your own life 
as you move through the, the, the tragedy of your personal existence, and also now that we've mentioned the tragedy of your brother, and then went on to the summa cum laude world of uh, Tufts University, and and now it, a mother and a, I gather still a wife, and when um, you're able to t- you know tell a story of resilience that is built on a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. So, um, what I guess I want to keep, I don't want to totally move off the book, but I want to come back to what. Four suicides, the second and the third. Tell us about that, if you would. Yes. So there were, uh, as 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 the chapter title implies, a total of four suicides in my family. The first was my brother. The second was my stepsister. My my parents divorced, and my mother remarried, and my stepsister. I actually had three stepsisters, but my youngest stepsister was the one who lived with me. Mm-hmm. And so I became closest to her. And she also took her life in Boston, wow. in the Boston area, when she was 19. Wow. And then the third suicide was my stepfather. That happened many years later, after he and my mother divorced. He took his life. Mm-hmm. And the fourth suicide was my mother herself. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this is now we're in, now we're into some pretty heavy weather here, so let's we're going to talk more about that, <laughs> but but it's it's what we're here for. So, we're talking to Lee's Dr. Lee's DeGear, her new book called Flashback Girl: Lessons on Resilience from a Burn Survivor. Please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Welcome back to Health Matters, Dr. Ned Hoke today, sharing the hour with uh, Dr. Lise DeGear um, and her new book, Flashback Girl, Lessons on Resilience from a Burned Survivor. So we're still, I want to say stuck, but we're still, at least I am still holding open the space of the four suicides, and, and, and I, this wasn't a chapter that I attended to at all carefully, so... Uh, maybe you could, you, you know, you just gave us the bare facts, but how did this, how did this touch you? How, how did these, these things touch you? I mean, we've talked a little bit about your brother and the tremendous loss, and we t- it's hard to not to imagine the, the, the sort of life kind of heartbreak that losing someone so close as Mark must have been for you. And, and it's just, it's, you know, it's, it, there's just, there's just nothing to, there's no, there's no replacement for one's best friend. I mean, but yeah. so we can all, it's not difficult to feel how that felt in terms of the, and the book tells us about that, but, but, but these other suicides, how did these touch you and kind of what, how did that inform you about, you know, your, after all, you went on to become a psychologist, you went on to do a lot of things. So did or maybe I'm making something that doesn't doesn't belong there. Maybe but did did these things did the were these things big triggers for you in some way or or not or say something about that if you would. Sure. Well, Mark's suicide was the worst thing that ever happened to me, mm-hmm. and and I say that as a severely burned person. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I I think most people looking at me would assume that what I went through with the fire was the worst thing that could have happened to me. But mm-hmm. it was really with Mark's death right. that I think I have never recovered from, and I think I probably never will. Mm. Uh, it, it, 
I mean, I, I function, obviously, and, and, and life has gone on, and, and I've built a beautiful life, but the pain of his death is always with me. The other suicides were all different to me because, of course, the relationships were all different. Sure. My stepsister, that was also an incredibly tragic loss, shocking and sad and hard. My stepfather... By that point, my parents, my mother and my stepfather had divorced, and I, I would not say that I had been close with him at that point. So it, it didn't hit me as much emotionally as Mark and Jackie's death did. Mm-hmm. But it was still tragic and so sad and such a waste, and I felt terrible for him. My mother's suicide was a uh, was a physician-assisted suicide, so in some ways you could say it was different, mm-hmm. um, and in some ways it was different. And in some ways, it wasn't, because she still chose to take her life long before um, uh, she was actually a very physically healthy person. She had a a bad speech, a a, a terrible speech um, problem that was progressive in nature. So she had a cognitive issue that was getting worse and worse, and that's why she chose to take her life, which in some ways I understood and in some ways, I will never understand, because that's the fourth suicide in my family. Wow! Yeah, that's, and, that's a little. Um, that's a little. That's a few too many for anyone. Family, yeah, for anyone. And, family. and and really, more than for me, um, my mother was, you know, the the grandmother of my two daughters. Yep. yep. And she yep. left that legacy for them, mm-hmm. and she well knows because she had also lived through three family suicides. She well knows or knew the emotional legacy she was leaving for the family by making that choice. And uh, so I would say with my mother's suicide, maybe unlike the others, I was angry. Mm. Mm-hmm. Did she talk about it with you? Did she, did she, was it, you know, was it something that was, was shared between the two of you? Yes. Uh-huh, Okay. Uh, she did talk about it with me and, and my husband and mm-hmm. even my children. Mm-hmm. Uh, my children, I mean, they were young women, but still just the same. They're my children. Sure. And we all said, please don't do this, mm-hmm. you know, um, just because you cannot speak does not mean that life can't be meaningful. And there's many things in life to enjoy that do not require speech. And so we attempted to get her to reconsider, but she was quite adamant. Mm. She went to Switzerland and had her had a physician assisted suicide there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so one of, one of the lessons in, in this in this book, I talked previously about how there's lessons at the end of every chapter. Right. So there's there's numerous lessons about suicide, and 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 the major takeaway is. Do not, do not take your life, because you leave the people who you love with a terrible legacy, that from which one does not recover. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't. Again, I don't mean you can't go on. Obviously, you can, because I did, and many of and most people do. But that pain of losing a loved one to suicide, I mean, losing a loved one to anything is incredibly painful. But losing a loved one to suicide 
is a whole is in a whole other league. Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're we we see at least we hear in the news anyway. We hear that suicide rates are up during the pandemic, and so in a sense, it, it's timely to to be talking about suicide just up front and out out in the public, shall we say, because the, the this this is the sort of thing that it it these things tend to go in waves, as you probably know. And uh, we we seem to be in a wave now. Not only are we dying of the disease, but we're dying of the horror that 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 visits upon the souls of of folks who are maybe at the edge of something or other, or maybe have their depression and so on. And they they they. But the hopelessness of the pandemic then magnifies, you know, the the the, the possibility at least of of making that choice. And and uh, in the case of your not in the case of your brother, particularly he was he he was on another journey, but it wasn't during the pandemic. This is a long time ago. But again, it's a, these decisions are are made oftentimes slowly, one step at a time. And uh, the way you tell it in the book, um, it's you can feel the, the 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 gradual loss of connection that 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 you I guess felt with your brother and others. And then, mm-hmm. and, and also the the horror that you just described, the, the the consequence of it living, and of course the people that I know that have have uh, families who've uh, suffered the suicide and and so on, they 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 are, they they seem to go through the rest of their lives saying to myself, "What could I have done? Where, how did I miss that? Or what, what was there something that I could have done?" And and people do feel like they've really. Missed out on a very something very important for their loved one, and uh, so it, it's definitely a, a heavy, a heavy burden to carry. Uh, and of course, this is this sort of takes us to the the, uh, the some of the next levels of discussion about pessimism, going from pessimism to opt to, to optimism. And we talked a little bit about that, but um, we, we, when you listen to the people you're working with now in terms of your professional practice. And you're so you're probably hearing some pessimism about the the the, uh, the pandemic. Share a little of your wisdom, if you would, about how you've been able to help some of your people with their pessimism and their and the, the horror that they are experiencing with this pandemic. Can you do something about that for us? Can you, can you help us, doctor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course, it, it, this is such a common thing that is coming up now in in my psychotherapy practice, and I'm sure it is for for most of us who are working with people, whether we're therapists or physicians or nurses or teachers, you know, people are in pain. Right. So I try to work with people a lot on the choices they are making in the course of their day and try to help them be mindful of that and steering them, if I can, if they're willing, towards healthier choices. Mm. So by which I mean, sometimes I think managing through crises comes down to some pretty simple and yet very hard to do things. Mm. Things like sleeping, uh, getting enough sleep, Mm -hmm. eating well, Nourishing your body with good food, meditation, getting outside, fresh air, being in nature, exercise, calling a friend, playing your instrument, listening to music. 
I could go on and on, but there are a lot of things that we can do during very hard times that will usually improve our mood and sense of well-being. The problem is getting ourselves to do it, Mm. because I just listed that whole list out. But what are most people doing when they're distressed? Eating. Eating. (laughs) You know, yeah, they're they're eating too much. They're drinking too much. They're sitting on the couch and binging on Netflix. They're on their phone, you know, texting instead of actually calling a friend. They're not going outside. They've given up exercise because they can't go to the gym anymore. And they're making a lot of choices that will not improve their sense of well-being. I say choices, that's easy for me to say. But I know it isn't easy for me to say. I try to live what I do. I mean, like this morning, you know, this has been a challenging week, I would say, for our country. And I'll leave it at that. But, you know, Mm -hmm. this morning, the day after the election, I got up and I you know, lifted my little hand weights and I got my dog and my husband. I said, let's take a walk. And we we took a walk and I put on music and I really, I meditated and I tried to do all these things I'm talking about. And you know what? I felt better. I really did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So did my husband. And believe me, he didn't want to (laughs) go. But uh, I made him. <laughs> of course, that's that's what that's what that's what that's what wives are for, you know. To, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that, that, that's yeah. yeah, that's good. Well, of course, the the you know that that somehow you know people have been dis have been so a lot of times have been so disempowered. And one of the things you talked about in terms of you know one of the things you learned as I looked through your book here you you talked about how you learned to take care of yourself and you learned how and you also learned how to take you know take help from others but you learned how to take care of yourself and of course i'm assuming that part of what how you did is you became a psychologist was that you needed to figure stuff out and so one of the i mean those of us who become doctors part of the reason we do it is we have the we have the we have our concerns and and one of the ways we, we so we study them we 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 pick up you know the books. We go to the classes. We hear stories. Whatever it is, we 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 absorb the solutions or the hope we the hope for solutions uh, because we ourselves are hungry for these kinds of things. And of course, me, I got up this morning and I I meditated as you <laughs> as you did, and I I didn't yet get my walk in because I had to do other things. But that will come after I am done speaking with you. But um, so but the my experience of people who are not used to self-care and and not used to taking responsibility for their self-care it's it's such a big step for them to you know to and so that's so my experience is just getting people to walk is just one of the one of the in fact people have stopped me in the street sometimes they said you know the best thing you ever told me to do was go out and walk 20 minutes in the morning you know and yeah. you know and i you know I, i'm pretty, i'm happy with that as the outcome because but it's so the the struggle for us in our therapy game uh, is to really be effective to people. So not everybody has a, a, a two thirds of their body covered with burns to overcome the pain and all that goes with that. But they have whatever they have, and so it's uh, the the challenge we have as therapists to be effective to help people make the transition into to better care for themselves. It takes books like the book you wrote. To with these really, really gut, almost gut wrenching stories, that that by showing, like exactly as you said, that if I can do it, other ca- others can too. Uh, 
So um, I urge our listeners to uh, want a story of of uh, of uh, resilience and survival and and growing and and coming to a a better place in life, and 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 w- with all the hardship that you've endu- endured, and I'm sure that there's still heartache and hardship for you in, yet in this life, but you've shown us that here's one girl anyway, who um, could could make it happen. So one last thing, what what is the what why flashback? What why why is that word there in the title? That's our last ah. question. Okay. It's a, um, it's, a, it's a fun little answer, actually. Good. So I discovered 50 years after the fire that my attorney had presented my little tragic fire case mm-hmm. to the United States Senate. Ah. Um, he was um, trying to get the law, the Consumer Protection Act, passed. And my case was one of the cases he presented um, because, I, as I said, my, the product was canned improperly, and that's one of the reasons why the fire happened to me. So he presented my case in front of the Senate, and I only discovered this, like, literally 50 years later, I found my picture in the Senate records. Wow. And uh, so I, I called this attorney, or I tried to, and it turns out that he had died. But I spoke with his brother, and I said, oh, hello, you know, I'm Lisa Gear, and uh, your, your brother was my attorney. And, and he goes, oh, are you the flashback girl? Wow. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and it turns out that my attorney had presented on my case for years and that it actually was kind of a famous case, um, at least in his little circle, about product safety. Mm. And so I thought, now, there's the title for this book. Mm-hmm. There's the title. Because flashback, of course, Was you know, from a, mental health, from a mental health perspective, is, right. is a symptom of trauma. And then also we think of flashback as being, oh, you have a flashback, like a memory. And, um, and then also it turned out to be my little nickname. And I thought, well, there you go. That's the title. So, yeah, flashback, mm-hmm. lessons on resilience from a burn survivor. Lise DeGear, thank you for taking from time for us. We've enjoyed hearing your story, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy reading your book. Uh, is there a, a website that goes with this book, or should is there any place people can go if they want more information? Sure. Oh, thanks so much for asking. Yeah, um, so first of all, they can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, mm-hmm. and if they, I mean, they can just put that in their little search link if they want to, or if you want to go to my website, that's my name. And I have the links to purchase there. Right. And my website is my name, which is leasedegear.com, L-I-S-E-D-E-G-U-I-R-E.com. Mm-hmm. Well, Lise, take, thank you again for taking some time for us, and I wish you uh, good luck with this book and, and, uh, and uh, more resilience. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It was so great to speak with you today. Okay. Take care now. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.